Today we're continuing our series, the title of which is behind me, The Pursuit of Happiness, and you should have notes for that, The Pursuit of Happiness. Everybody have some? Page three today, our second session. Before we uh, get into that, let me remind you that this Wednesday is our second of two backyard fellowships for the summer, and this will be at uh, 6.30. It'll be at the home of uh, Peter and Wanda Stevenson on Grozeal. And in your program is listed what we ask you to bring for that. The church provides the main uh, dish, and it's just a, a good time together. If you don't know where Peter and Wanda live on Grozeal, there are maps to their place at the table over here. So pick that up before you leave, and we hope you can come uh, this coming, uh, this coming uh, Wednesday. We're in the series, the, the Pursuit of Happiness. And last week I warned you that this series would be convicting for most of us. It's certainly convicting for me, and I've already heard after just one session that it's uh, convicting for some of you as well. I wanted to issue that warning because uh, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of how we live and how very often the way we live does not line up with what God has said if we're honest about it. The things that we put our energies and our time into are not the things that God says are important to Him. We're going to see that today. So that in itself is convicting. Now, I warned you, that's got a negative connotation to it, a warning about conviction. Now, I, I state it that way, as a warning and with that negative connotation, a word with a negative connotation, because conviction hurts. It's hard to see where we are and the gap between where we are and where we need to go. That's true for, for most of us. But the fact of the matter is that conviction, if seen in the big picture, is actually a good thing. Because the Christian life is all about change. It's all about change unless you are where you need to go, where you need to be. And none of us are. If that's the case, then the Christian life every day is in the process of, of change. It is about transformation and change. And conviction, then, is just one way that that change, that necessary change, occurs. So if you want that change into what we need to become, then you'll invite the vehicle by which it comes. And that's conviction. So instead of seeing it negatively, I want you and me to adjust our thinking a little bit and say, even though some of this is painful, I am going to listen, I am going to apply by God's grace because I want to get from here to there and the pain is part of the process now how do I know that conviction is part of the the good process of getting us where we need to go if you want to turn there you can but most many of you are familiar with this passage in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 in 2nd Timothy 3:16, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for, and then it gives four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The Bible, God's Word, Scripture, is from God and is useful for those four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, those things, those four things are in a logical order. If you put any of them in a different order, it doesn't make any sense if you understand what each of them mean. For example, the second of that list of four, rebuking, is actually the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated elsewhere, convicting. 
So you could, you could translate it this way. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, convicting, correcting, and training in righteousness. But see, you don't do the convicting before you get the teaching. You have to be taught the way it's supposed to be before then you are rebuked or convicted. And then logically, the next thing is, thankfully God doesn't leave us at convicted, <laughs> laying there beaten up and bleeding. But he says, I'm going to tell you what to do to correct it. That's the third thing. And then he says, I'm going to give you instructions about developing disciplined training in righteousness. The word training, same Greek word for discipline. To make these changes now a habit of life. And so God's word and the Christian life are all about the process of change. And even though that process involves the rebuking, the convicting, which is painful, the pain is short-lived and it is for long-term gain, the gain that presumably all of us want, namely to get where we need to go, to be like Jesus, to please God with our lives. Okay? So I warned you that it was going to be convicting. The Christian life is about change and the Bible is also about change. And I said last week, in the title of this series, The Pursuit of Happiness, that in this past week, each of us has pursued what we think will make us happy. And I pointed out last week, you either pursued it by actually engaging in it, by actually doing it, or you pursued it by being discontent in the absence of it. But either way, your week this past week was about the thing or things that you think will make you happy. So the truth of the matter is we all already pursue what we think will make us happy. And the first page two in your notes, and you want to listen online if you have time, I encourage you to do that to last week's lesson, was about the fact that we often pursue the wrong things. We think they'll make us happy. They'll think, we think they'll get us where we need to go. And then we find out that they're actually empty. But we're pursuing. We are all pursuers of happiness. And we did it this past week. We did it the week before. We'll do it again this week. And so the real question for us is then, am I pursuing the things that will genuinely provide happiness? And last week, I asked the question at the top of page two, can Jesus really make me happy? And the answer, I'm afraid, for even many professing Christians is no. I mean, I'm okay with Jesus, you know, we, we say. I'm good with Jesus. I even go to church. I even read the Bible. You know, it's all good. But in terms of my happiness, I don't look to Jesus for that. You know, I've already, got, I already had an agenda when I came to Jesus. And so now Jesus joins my agenda. As a matter of fact, Jesus blesses my agenda. That's kind of what I need him around for. <laughs> And I'll make sure my agenda works out the way I want it to. Jesus blessed my agenda. Jesus baptized my agenda. So if I pray over it, then it's cool. Now, look, I don't know how many NASCAR people we have here. If you're a NASCAR person, I told you in the first hour, I'm a hockey fan. I like hockey. We've all got our hobbies and avocations. So if you're a NASCAR dude or a dudette, I'm not beating on you. I'm only bringing this up because it's current. 
you know, there was this, I guess a NASCAR-like pray, you know, every time there's a NASCAR thing, they pray. And I know because NASCAR people have told me, that is really cool. It is just really cool that we pray. Great. I'm not judging NASCAR. I don't know much about NASCAR. But the fact that you pray over it doesn't baptize it and doesn't get, get Jesus' blessing on whatever you're doing. But this past week, some pastor, the, you know, the pastor of the week that they chose to pray, prays. And he thanks God for all sorts of things. I didn't even hear the prayer. I read about it. And I guess he, pray, he, he thanked God for his smoking hot wife. You know, and the NASCAR people love that. You know, so anyway. But, but my point is, look, friends, many of us take the approach that says, I have Jesus to join my agenda. And I use Jesus to bless and baptize my agenda. And today, I want to challenge that from page three, that approach, that Jesus baptizes my agenda. Top of page three do, the question we need to ask ourselves is not, can Jesus baptize what I'm already doing? The question is, do I like what Jesus likes? So not, can I conform Jesus to my life, but am I seeing my life conformed to what Jesus says it ought to be? The other way around. Now, in order to get us from here to there to think that way, instead of the way we normally think, Jesus baptizing, Jesus blessing, Jesus endorsing my agenda. To get us from here to there, I should have put this in your notes, but I didn't. So if you care to write this down. There are four exchanges in the Bible that are really important. Four exchanges. The first exchange is found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. And it's exchanging the worship of God for the worship of created things. To put it another way, the first exchange in the Bible chronologically is the exchange of the worship of the Creator for the worship of the created, the creation. And Romans 1.24 speaks of that very, that very thing. Here's what it says. Romans 1.25, excuse me. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. The first exchange chronologically in the Bible is the fall into sin of humanity. And that fall of humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin in the garden, back at the beginning of your Bible, involved what Romans 1.25 says, an exchange of the pursuit of glory. Instead of pursuing glory, instead of pursuing satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness... In the Creator, we are now going to find it in the creation. You may remember when the woman was tempted to disobey God. And she saw that it was good to touch and pleasing to the eye. You all remember that? This created thing that God said, 
I'm testing you with regard to your worship of me and whether or not you will worship me exclusively or the gifts that I give you. She fails that test, and she fails that test because she wanted it more than she wanted him. And so the very first exchange in the Bible is an exchange of, of worship, from worshiping the Creator to worshiping the creation. And the human race is plunged into sin as a result. Now, God, thanks be to God, intervenes. And God gives us three other exchanges in order to reverse the exchange, the sinful exchange of allegiance to the creation rather than the creator. And so that second exchange is this. It's my sin given to Christ. Christ takes on my sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So the second exchange is God's program now to do something about the first one. And the, fir and the, and the first thing God does now in response to that is, He takes our sin. Now if that's all you have... You're at ground zero. Because Christ takes your sin and he absorbs, takes the penalty for your sin. And now you die and you stand before God and God says, I'm making this up. God says, why should I let you in? And you say, because Jesus paid for my sin. And God says, only righteous people get in here. You see, Jesus paying for your sin doesn't make you righteous. It just means your penalty's been paid. That's why you have to have the third exchange. And that is Christ's righteousness given to me. If you were here during our 9.30 hour, we had a song. Our ensemble sang a song, His Robes for Mine. He gave His robes of righteousness to me. I exchange my robes of unrighteousness for his robe of absolute righteousness. So now my penalty for my sin is paid on the cross because Christ became sin for me, but I also have the righteousness of Christ given to me. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. That God declares, justifies is the word that's used there, which means to declare righteous those who are actually not righteous. <laughs> I'm not righteous. I'm still sinful. And yet I get this robe of righteousness from Christ, thanks be to God. And I stand before God then, complete in Jesus. My position now before God is no longer alienated from Him and no longer under His wrath, but because he has given me the death of Christ to pay the penalty and the robe of Christ to give me perfect righteousness, I stand before him complete in Jesus. That's my position before him. That's how he sees me. But I'm still here. 
and I'm still living here. I'm still living in this fallen world, and I still got this fallen body, and I still have these temptations that I had before those great exchanges occurred when I came to Jesus. And so now I'm still struggling, which is the fourth exchange. And the fourth exchange is my life to him. I'm giving and living my life for him. Notice at the top of page 3, 2 Corinthians 5.15, the second verse we have listed there. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, the fourth exchange is now my life for the life of Jesus. He who would save his life, says Jesus, will do what? Lose it. But he who will lose his life for my sake will find it. If you've come to Jesus Christ, then you've already gone through the first three of those four. You came into this world with the exchange of worshiping the created things rather than the creator. That's your natural bent. That's my natural bent. And if you came to Christ, you heard the good news of the gospel, he's paid your penalty for that. And so his sin was placed, your sin was placed on him. His righteousness is given to you. And now you're to be in the process of your life being transformed into his life. Now, I choose my words carefully. Transformed into his life. Not my life with some Jesus sprinkled on top. My life is to be transformed into his life now. And isn't that the language that Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 uses and that we saw last week? And if you're not familiar with it, if you just flip back to the previous page, page 2 up at the top. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it says you will then be able to prove and attest, test and approve the will of God, the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. That's where you're supposed to be. We're supposed to be in that fourth exchange right now. Your life is supposed to be that fourth exchange. Now, if you haven't had the first two, by having come to Christ, well, then you've got to do that. We'll give you opportunity to do that before we leave. He offers that to you. And then he begins this transformation. Ch trans means change. <laughs> so he is transforming. He is changing your values into his values. Not getting Jesus on board with what you already like. Getting you on board with what Jesus likes. But, top of page three. Doesn't Jesus care about the same things I do? I, I can only conclude from what I see and read and hear from so many professing Christian people that that's what we think. Jesus likes what I like. Transform what? 
Jesus gets on board with what I like. Isn't the stuff that, that I do, as long as it's not overtly sinful, then isn't that the stuff that Jesus thinks is most important? Well, let's test that a bit from Scripture. Top of page 3, notice Philippians 2. Paul, who wrote this, says this about one of his associates named Timothy. I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Now, here's why. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, what is Paul suggesting there? That there are two categories of interests. <laughs> there's yours and there's Jesus's, and they're not necessarily the same. Everyone looks out for his own, not Jesus's. And the truth is, since you and I all of us were engaged in the first exchange of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It should follow for us, should it not, that all of us have plenty of things that are in the Ken category rather than the Jesus category? And Paul's simply acknowledging that. Most of us live for our own agenda, not Jesus' agenda. And underlying what he's saying is here they is, forgive the grammar, they ain't the same. The interests of Jesus are not automatically the interests of Ken. And most people don't follow the interests of Jesus. So what I'm trying to do in this opening section is to awaken you to the truth. That the agenda that you had when you came to Jesus is not necessarily Jesus' agenda. And he's looking to change it, to transform it. Not baptize it, not bless it. But we Christians are pretty clever folk. We have very clever, biblical, we think biblical ways to baptize the stuff we already want to do. Believe me, I've heard them all. One of them is this. Look at the second thing on page three. But everything I do is an act of worship. Now that is spiritual, baby. You see, when I'm pursuing my agenda, again, assuming it's not overtly sinful, so when I'm pursuing my hobbies and my avocations, whatever they are, as long as they're not sinful, everything I do is an act of worship. What about that, Brown? It's a spiritual way of saying, here's my agenda, and if I worship Jesus with it, thus the prayer, Jesus bless this thing that I want to spend my time doing. If I, have, if, if I bless it for the worship of Jesus, then it's all good. Right? Wrong. Now, why do I say that? One of the passages that's often used to, to justify that is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. I don't have it there. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, I'm quoting it, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Interpreted by American Christians to be this. Whatever you do can be done to the glory of God. 
And that's not what it says. It actually says, whatever you choose has to be done for the glory of God. And it actually, in the three chapters that precede that concluding verse, describes what that looks like. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians. You remember 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? All three chapters are about this. They're about this question of whether or not I should eat, they should eat meat that had been sacrificed previously at a temple, a heathen temple, to an idol. So in the city of Corinth, they have a temple. They sacrifice animals to these pagan gods and goddesses. And then when they're done with the animal, they sell at a discount the meat at a counter out in the, in the alley. And the Corinthians buy it, and now they've come to Jesus, and now they're wondering, am I supposed to be eating this meat? I've been doing this my whole life. It's pretty good stuff. It's at a good price. But it was sacrificed to an idol. And as you read chapters 8, 9, and 10, that's what it's about. And Paul gives instruction about that. And he says, you know, you can eat it, but love is more important than discounted meat. And so, if what you do is going to harm someone else in following Jesus, then don't eat the meat. But it's just meat. That's what he says. He goes on in chapter 9 to say, we as Christians have to be willing to give up things that are not, now hear this, give up things that are not sinful for the sake of higher values. And in chapter 9, he talks about in his own life how he had to give up things that were not sinful or he chose to give up things that were not sinful for a higher purpose. He talks about the fact that he didn't take any collections for his support because he didn't want anybody to be able to make an accusation that Paul's in it for the money. And so he says in chapter 9, we did not use any of these rights. He has a lengthy section in chapter 9 talking about how it's perfectly right and good to support those who are the dispensers of the gospel. But he chose not to do that for a period of time for a higher purpose. He said he chose not to take a wife along with him on his journeys, even though he had a right to do that. He says that in chapter 9. He says over and over again, but we did not use any of these rights. And then in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, chapter 10, 23 and 24. If you were to look at that in the NIV, you would see a quotation. It's in quotation marks. And it says this, all things are lawful. And then there's a phrase that's not in quotation marks, but not all things are beneficial. Then you see in quotation marks again, all things are lawful, but, not, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now the quote, all things are lawful, is a quote in quotes because he's quoting the Corinthians. They were doing the American Christianity thing that says, it's all good. It's all lawful. And Paul says, no, it's not. Not necessarily. And then he summarizes the whole thing in verse 31 famously, Therefore, whether you eat, chapter 8, drink or whatever you do, only do it if it's to the glory of God. Not that everything's to the glory of God. Only do what's to the glory of God. 
Let me repeat that. Not that everything is to the glory of God. You only do what is to the glory of God. And you eliminate the stuff that is even questionable with regard to that. That's what he did for the sake of something higher. Isn't everything I do an act of worship? Well, we're clever people. 1 Corinthians 10.31, we've been taking that out of context for decades. And people have based their lives on whatever I'm doing, I just do to the glory of Jesus. And rather than Jesus then transforming what I do, Jesus is placed on top of what I do. Here's another way we're clever. I've heard preachers say this. Maybe you've heard them say this as well. You know, some preacher will really get, be getting going. He'll be whomping it up. And he'll say, to the Christian, every bush is a burning bush. And all ground is holy ground. That's a really cool phrase. It makes for some really great preaching. It happens to be wrong. Truth messes up some really good preaching. You know that? Every bush is a burning bush. See, here's the thing about burning bushes. The thing that's cool about them is there aren't that many of them. If every bush is a burning bush, they're not all that special anymore. Right? Moses saw the burning bush. He was able to identify it because the other bushes weren't burning. It's what the word holy means. Holy means set apart, different. Not like everything else. That bush was holy because it wasn't like all the other bushes. Because it was doing something bushes don't normally do. Burn and not be consumed. All ground is holy ground. Moses, take off your sandals. Because the ground you are standing on is separated, holy, sacred ground. So does Moses go sandal-less the rest of his life everywhere he goes? What's so holy about that ground? Well, the truth is it's dirt. What's sacred about it, separate, different about it, is God talked to this guy there. That doesn't happen every place. So the TV preacher who says, expect a miracle. See, the thing that's really cool about miracles is they don't happen all the time. And so the idea that you expect a miracle or command a miracle. And so we have all of these ways that sound good and are actually false teaching. Everything I do is not necessarily an act of worship. And I should only do those things that do bring glory to God. Jesus has interests and they're not necessarily mine automatically. And they're not necessarily yours. In fact, Paul says most people don't follow Jesus' interests. They follow their own. Well, then how do I know what Jesus cares about? Middle of page 3. I mean, if it's not automatic, when I came to Jesus and I got my ticket to heaven, but not necessarily my map through life, as I said last week, take out the map again. Take a look at that map through this life now, not just your ticket to heaven. And begin to ask yourself now, well, what does Jesus care about? What does he say? In the guidebook, in the map that he's given, does he give any clues what he really cares about and therefore what I need to prioritize in my life? 
I'm going to say he does. Jesus is leaving. Matthew 28, Luke 24, he is departing the earth. He's going back to the Father. He's completed his work on earth. He has died for the sins of his people. He has been raised. He showed himself alive for 40 days, and he is now going back to heaven. And he gives his final instructions. Now, would you all agree with me? When Jesus gives his final words, I'm leaving, this is what I want you to do. We ought to pay attention. That would seem to be fairly important. And you know what he said, don't you? In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, here are my final instructions. Do you go and make disciples of all nations? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Here are your marching orders. Well, what am I, we, what are we supposed to do with that? I'm glad you asked. Jesus anticipated that you would ask. So he gave you a book, of the fifth book in your New Testament, to show you what you're supposed to do with that. It's called the Acts the actions of the apostles, the people to whom those final instructions were first given, now began to carry that out. And they do that in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts lays out something for shorthand purposes I will call the biblical mission, the mission to which he has called all of us. And that mission of making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them is centered on this new thing that Jesus started in the second chapter of that book, Acts, Acts chapter 2. Anybody know what this new thing was that he started then? It's called the church. See, church, the church was Jesus' idea. And it was Jesus' idea to carry out Jesus' mission. So as you now start to think about what does Jesus care about, you should think, mission and you should think church and you should start thinking about your place in the mission through his church he cares about that so how do I know what Jesus cares about now the last part there will this be on the test we can continue this next week each of these pages is not necessarily one self-contained lesson I say that simply because I don't know that I can finish them all in one week because I talk too much. So we'll see about that last point. But with that third point, how do I know what Jesus cares about? Look at the map he gave. Look at the mission he gave. Look at the vehicle that he created to carry out that mission. And then he has all these other books completing your Bible that are written to churches on how to go about that business. Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, Thessalonians. Titus and Timothy were pastors of churches. You know, it sort of looks like the church is like really important. And the mission that the church is carrying out is your marching order and my marching order. Now, let's, let's contrast that with the stuff you did this past week. Remember I said the convicting part? How did you spend your time this week? 
And did you spend it on stuff Jesus really cares about? Does Jesus really care all that much how you look? Now I say all that much. He cares a bit. He doesn't want you scaring anybody. That's a bad testimony. That doesn't help us with the mission. Really. So he doesn't want you scaring anybody. I want you to sort of have it in order. You know, so that people don't go, what's that? And you're representing who? And you want to tell me what? So it matters to that extent, to the extent that it has effect on the mission to which we are called. I can't, we can just go down the list of all of the avocations that, pe- that, that you and I are giving our lives to and spending our money and our time on. Sports. I'm a sports fan. And I am tempted to use too much time and an inordinate amount of time on sports. And some of you are as well. And you baptize it. My girls go to a Christian school. I'm just being perfectly frank with you. There are people at my girls' Christian school that are, that are idolatrous, I'm convinced, idolatrous with regard to sports and the sports at their school. It's an idol. But we pray before every game. I've had opportunity to pray before some of the games. I'm there to watch. They grab somebody to pray. Hey, will you pray? I pray. I'm praying before the game. I have a smoking hot wife, but I didn't, you know, thank God for her. <laughs> I am thankful for my smoking hot wife. <laughs> but I do pray, I did pray this. God, help us to remember that you don't care about the outcome. But you care about the process. You care about how we conduct ourselves. You don't care about who wins or loses this. I didn't say this, but really, in the grand scheme, who cares? Now, that's, that's, that's one thing we can baptize it all we want. And, and it ends up being an idolatrous replacement of created things instead of the creator and what he cares about. How you look, your next exotic vacation... Whatever it is can be that idol for you. And I'm encouraging you, friend and friends, as I have to encourage myself, how did you spend your time this week? Is it on what Jesus cares about? We won't get to that. Will it be on the test until next week? Let me say that Community Baptist Church can do some damage for the kingdom. You know what I mean by that? I mean, we can, we, can, we can do some serious stuff for the kingdom of Jesus. And God's already used us to do that, thanks be to God. But there's plenty more for us to do and plenty more people for us to reach. Plenty more people who need to hear the gospel message. To become disciples of Jesus, to be baptized and taught to obey everything that he has said. How much could be done if this group of people would realign their priorities to be what Jesus cares about.
I'm asking you to think about that. I'm asking you to think about, am I involved in the work that God has given to us to do? You are a gifted person. The word gifted implies a giver. Someone gave you those gifts. And those gifts are to be used for the purpose for which they were given. And every person here is gifted. And you're to use those gifts for his mission. You have time to do it. More time than you think. If you stop baptizing the stuff you were already doing when you came to Jesus. And you say, these things are more important than those things. Are some of you willing to do that? Some of you are doing it now. A lot of you are doing it now. Thanks be to God. I am blessed to high heaven when I see the people who are doing that. Leaving it on the field for Jesus, man. I could name you. A bunch of you. I'm thankful for you and the encouragement that you are. Some of you are pursuing your own agenda and you got Jesus on top. And church is something you show up to. Not something that is your mission. And dear friend, I am telling you on the authority of God's word, forget what Ken tells you. Who cares what Ken thinks? I'm telling you this is what Jesus has said we're here to do. And I'll give you a preview on that last question on page three. Will this be on the test? What do you think? Yeah. Jesus is going to say, what did you do? What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the time I gave you? Did you make an idol out of sports? An idol out of your body? An idol out of, out of your looks? And you spent money and you spent time on all the stuff which in the grand scheme of things don't matter. Did I say this would be convicting? And it is for me as well. I ask you to think about that, dear friend. We'll continue this next week. We'll look at the, something that the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ and how we will one day stand before him. And he will ask us, how did you pursue your happiness? What did you pursue to make you happy in the life that I gave you? Now, remember I said there were four exchanges? The original sin exchanging the glory of the creator for created things. But then the exchange of my sin on Christ and Christ's righteousness to me. We're going to pray in just a moment. But your sin can be placed on Christ and his righteousness given to you in, in, in a moment. If you will ask him. If you will acknowledge that you have been pursuing created things rather than the creator. Or to put it another way, that just means you're a sinner. If you'll acknowledge that to him and you will say to him, I believe Jesus paid for my sin. That my sin was given to him, all of it, past, present, and future. And I believe he was perfect because he was God. And his righteousness can be given to me. Lord, will you give what Jesus has to me? And he will. And then he'll begin his transformation project on you. You go, really? Then I got to like give up the stuff that... And then I gotta be like like you people. <laughs> Listen, the question is, is the one who died for you one you can trust with your life? He gave himself for you. You can trust him with tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and the next ten years.
And whatever he has for you, you can be guaranteed of this. It will be good for you. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's bow together. Father, I'm convicted of my idolatry and the continuing exchange that goes on in my life to exchange what is really unimportant and to put aside the things that you have made clear that are most important. I ask you to forgive me, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that there are brothers and sisters here who are asking you to forgive them as well because we have all sinned in this regard. We are all tempted regularly by the world and the things that we think will give us happiness and we neglect the things that you have told us to do which guarantee our happiness. So Lord, work in our hearts as you're working in my heart to realign our priorities as individuals and as a church. I pray for any right now who have never come to the Lord Jesus that right now they're doing that. Simply asking because they believe who Jesus is and what he has done, taking their sin and being willing to give his perfect life of righteousness to them. And may they begin this exciting journey into the transformation that only Jesus can give. Go with us this week as we, begin, as we ponder and pray about and implement these things. Grant us safety, we ask you. Bring us back safely next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.